into our Bible lesson for this evening. We'll be back in Genesis chapter number 17. As you remember last week, uh, I was trying uh, my hardest to finish chapter 17 up, and I just, I just could not get it all done in time. And so I figured, well, since uh, I'm going to be teaching on it again, I'll go ahead and develop a little more of the end of the chapter that I was just going to pass over. We'll go ahead and look at it a little more in depth. And so, I don't know, be like Brother Danny in Sunday school here a few weeks ago. Brother Danny started a lesson, and he had one point left. And so he thought this past Sunday that he would cover that point, and he almost didn't get to it again. So I might pull a Brother Danny on you tonight, but uh, we'll try not to do that. But uh, it's good, brother. It's good both times. I liked it. Hey, man, good stuff. But, uh, hey, man. Genesis uh, 17. Now, if you remember, we'll do a little bit of review here to get us up to where we were at. Uh, in Genesis 16, we read of Abraham's uh, union with Hagar, uh, how they jumped ahead of God. Uh, and uh, then we see from the end of chapter 16 to the beginning of chapter 17, there was 13 years of silence. And so we titled this lesson, Breaking the Silence, because 13 years had passed. There had been no word from God. Nothing had happened. And then we come to chapter number 17, and we see that uh, God broke the silence with Abraham. He broke the silence and uh, began to speak uh, to Abraham. And so... Well, this evening, we're going to dive back into that and look at this thing of God breaking the silence. And so to get started, we're going to read a few verses here uh, this evening. I'm looking here. Let's start in verse number 17. That's about where we ended uh, last week. We'll start in verse 17, read down through the end of the chapter, uh, and then we'll, we'll jump into this. I'll give you a little bit of review, and then we'll get to the remainder of the lesson. The Bible says in Genesis 17, in verse number 17, then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day, as God had said unto him. And Abraham was ninety years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised, and Ishmael his son, and all the men of his house, born in the house and bought with the money of the stranger were circumcised with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the, your, this day. We thank you, Lord, how that you have blessed us. You've watched over us. We thank you, Lord, you give us this privilege and this opportunity to come to your house. And Lord, I know in a little bit we'll be praying for the request, but Lord, I think of 
Uh, Lord, those that are sick and, uh, Lord, those that are unable to be here. Lord, those that uh, would love to be here but, Lord, are unable to. Lord, I, I pray that you will be with each and every one. I pray, dear Lord, that you will be with the lesson tonight. I pray, dear Lord, that you will bless as we look at your word. I pray, dear Father, Lord, that it will uh, encourage us, it will challenge us, it will educate us. Uh, Father, Lord, and, and Lord, it will lift us up, uh, Lord, that we might be equipped to serve you, Father, I pray. I think of the children's ministries downstairs. I pray you be with uh, Pastor Kent as he... Uh, is preaching to the teens. I pray for Brother Aiden as he's teaching the young folks. Uh, I pray to the Lord you be with those that are down there preparing the meal and everyone, Lord, that is investing in those young people. Father, I pray that you would just work in their life. Help them and bless them, Father, I pray. Thank you for this opportunity to come to your house. Thank you for each one that is faithful, uh, Lord, to come out. And Lord, I pray that you will bestow upon them an extra blessing, uh, Lord, for their desire to learn and know of you, Father, I pray. Thank you for your goodness to us. Bless now as we look into your word in Jesus' name, amen and amen. As we started into this passage of Scripture, of course, the first thing we saw, and we'll move through these pretty quickly, uh, is we saw the appearance and introduction of God there in verses 1 and 2, and we've seen how that this was a clear example of Jesus in the Old Testament declaring that He was God. And we saw that picture there of how uh, He introduced Himself uh, to Abram as the Almighty God. Then in verse number 3, we saw the reverence of Abram, how that he fell down before God and uh, he reverenced God uh, when God showed up and, of course, reflects the attitude that we should always have any time that we enter into the presence of God. Then we've seen in verse 4 and verse number 5 the name change from Abram to Abraham. And we saw here the revision of Abram to Abraham. And the Lord told Abraham, he said, My covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. And we've seen, of course, how that Abram means exalted father, but Abraham means the father of of a multitude. And then we continued on to verse 6 and verse number 8, or 6 through 8, uh, where we saw the reassurance of God's covenant. We looked down through those verses and we've seen how that over and over God says, I will, I will, I will. I will, and Brother uh, uh, Rick even mentioned that Sunday morning about all the I wills that is in the Bible where God says, I will. And here we see God telling Abraham five times, I will. God assures Abraham of his faithfulness and assures him that he will do what he said he would do. And then in uh, verse 9 down through verse number 14, we saw the physical reminder of the covenant. Of course, this was the institution of the religious rite of circumcision. And we've seen how that this physical reminder was put placed there as a generational reminder of the promise, a distinguishing mark from other nations, an indication of their dedication to God. It was a call for them to come out from among the other people and to be separate. God was showing them that they were chosen. They, they were a peculiar people just as he has called you and I to be in this day. And then uh, in verse 15 and 16, we saw the revelation of Sarah's involvement. Uh, God said unto Abraham, As for Sarah thy wife, thou shalt not call her Sarah, 
but Sarah shall her name be, and I will bless her and give thee a son. Also of her, yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. And then after looking at that, we came into the response of Abraham. And this is where we had to end uh, last Wednesday night. We had to end here at this response of Abraham. Uh, but, but we looked in verse number 17 at the laughter of of Abraham, and we compared that with Romans chapter number 4, and we seen that this laughter of Abraham was not a laughter of doubt, but rather a laughter of rejoicing. We looked at the fact that all along it had been Abraham's desire and Sarah's desire that they could have a child together. This was something they wished for before God ever called them out, that they could have a child together. But now within the understanding of their mind, they felt that it was humanly impossible and they had tried some other avenues uh, to fulfill what God had said he would do uh, and they did not understand. And here in this passage, God told Abraham and Sarah, he said, Sarah is who the seed is coming through. Prior to this, God had not told them that it would come through Sarah. I think maybe that God felt like they would understand that's where the child was coming from. But a lot of times in our human understanding, we can't see what God can see. We don't understand what God is planning. And so we see here uh, that whenever Abraham heard that Sarah would be the mother of the son, he was overwhelmed and laughed in rejoicing and and. Many times we look at this passage, if we just look at Genesis, it can be interpreted as doubt. But whenever we compare it with Romans 4, uh, verse 19 to 22, and I don't want to get hung up here again, but we'll just look at the passage real quick. The Bible says in Romans 4, verse number 19, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about an hundred years old. And so we know that this is the same instance that we're looking at in Genesis because here in Genesis he was 99 years old. And uh, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. And when we compare these two scriptures together, we see that this was a laughter of rejoicing that God was going to give them a child through Sarah. But in addition to Abraham's rejoicing, and we'll slow down at this point as we go through the rest of the lesson, but in addition to Abraham's rejoicing, as we continue in this conversation between God and Abraham, we see Abraham's request concerning Ishmael. In verse number 18, we see Abraham's request. We see there in verse number 18, And Abraham said unto God, All that Ishmael might live, before thee. Now, if we interpret verse number 17 as being a laughter of doubt, then we see verse number 18 and we interpret verse number 18 as being Abraham asking God if Ishmael can be the promised seed. And sometimes folks have interpreted that passage that way. But that is not consistent with what we read in Romans. Because if Abraham was asking for Ishmael to be the promised seed, then Romans doesn't make sense. He would have been doubting God's ability to give him a seed through Sarah, but instead he, fully, he was fully persuaded. He staggered not. He fully believed God. So here in verse number 18 we understand that this is not Abraham asking if Ishmael can be the promised seed, but instead Abraham has recognized. 
Abraham's just a human like you and I, and throughout the course of the 13 silent years, I'm sure it crossed his mind every now and again that Ishmael might have been the promised seed. He wasn't sure how it was going to work out, but Ishmael was his son. And I'm sure he pondered some different scenarios involving Ishmael. Whenever God said the promised seed is coming through Sarah, he realized that Ishmael was not the promised seed. But Ishmael was his son, and Abraham loved his son. He had raised this boy. He had been with this boy. They had worked together. Abraham loved his son. And he's asking God to bless Ishmael also. I understand. Now I see. He's not the promised seed, but I am asking that you will bless Ishmael, that Ishmael might live before thee. And so Abraham is making a request in regard to Ishmael. Now in verse 19 down through verse number 21, we see God responding to Abraham's rejoicing and his request. And so we'll look at, a, at three things here of God's response to Abraham. First we see in verse number 19 that God confirms Sarah's inclusion. He confirms Sarah's inclusion. In verse number 19, and God said... Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. And thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. Now I love that word indeed right there. If Abraham's laughter would have been a laughter of doubt, God would have made a correcting statement. No, Abraham, it will be Sarah. It's not Ishmael, it will be Sarah. But this is not a correcting statement. This is a, a, a joining statement. Abraham is rejoicing and God is rejoicing with him and saying, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. I know it's hard to believe. I know that this is not, you didn't see how this was going to happen, but let me tell you, this is indeed how it's going to happen, Abraham. He is rejoicing with Abraham and confirms that yes, Sarah will bear the son. Then we see, second, that God answered Abraham uh, with a consideration of Ishmael's future. He says in verse number 20, As for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. He said, Abraham, I have heard your request concerning Ishmael, and Abraham, I will bless him. I will uh, make him fruitful. I will multiply him. He will also be a great person. But then in verse number 21, he speaks of the, com of the commitment to Isaac's role. He says, but Abraham, make no mistake. My covenant will I establish with Isaac. Make no mistake, I will bless Ishmael. He will be fruitful and multiply. But Abraham, I want you to understand, the promised seed is Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time. 
in the next year. Now it's interesting that Ishmael is the first person in the Bible who was given a name before birth and Isaac is the second person in the Bible who was given a name before birth. Now as we go throughout the Word of God, we will see many instances where God tells the parent what to name the child, but Ishmael and Isaac were the first two that God said, this is what you will name your child. And he said, my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time next year. So in response to Abraham, we see the confirmation of Sarah's inclusion, the consideration of Ishmael's future, and a commitment to Isaac's role. We then see an action, and this is where we'll be for the rest of our lesson. We see an action that confirms Abraham's faith in verse 23 down through verse number 27, and that is Abraham's immediate obedience. Immediate obedience. If you look in the, in the Bible there, in verse number 22, it says, And he, speaking of God, left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So the conversation is over. God had met with Abraham, but now the conversation is over, and God leaves. And in verse number 23, we see Abraham immediately obeying what God had told him to do. Uh, there in that uh, remainder it says, And Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day as God had said unto him. Abraham immediately obeyed God. Now I want to show several things uh, here in this passage concerning Abraham's obedience. First, it was prompt. Abraham's obedience was Prompt. Now this is basically what I said when I said it was immediate obedience, but I want to look at this for a moment. There is no hesitation in Abraham's obedience. Now what God has asked Abraham to do is a pretty big deal. This isn't, uh, it's maybe not big as Noah building an ark, uh, but this is a big deal. I mean this is something that there's a lot of questions about. Uh, there could be a lot of medical questions about this. There could be a lot of health concerns in regard to this. Uh, this is something that had never been heard of, something that had never been done. There is a big thing that God is asking Abraham to do, and not only is he asking Abraham to do it himself, but he's asking him to do it to everyone in his household. This could invoke quite a bit of concern. But yet we see that there is no hesitation in Abraham's obedience. By now, Abraham has learned that with God, the best thing to do is trust and obey. This is the best thing to do. I may not understand it. I may not get it. But the best thing to do is what God says to do. There is no hesitation. God gave the instruction and Abraham acted upon it. Abraham didn't take time to reason over the implications of God's command. I don't find Abraham going into the house and deliberating with Sarah over whether or not this is something they ought to do. I don't find Abraham meeting with the servants and asking how they felt about moving forward with this. No hesitation uh, in Abraham's response. Abraham didn't consider the physical setback that he himself would experience. Now we know from later on when Jacob's sons uh, slew an entire nation that this procedure was, would set you back physically. Abraham's 99 years old. This could set him back considerably. 
Abraham didn't consider the physical setback. He didn't hesitate because of that. God gave the command. Abraham acted upon it. You know, we often hear the phrase, to delay is to disobey. You'll say that to your children. You'll say, hey, come here. And uh, they kind of look at you and they take a couple steps your direction and they're dwaddling around and you're like, come on. To delay is to disobey. You obey right now. And so we often use that phrase. But to take that further, to delay whenever God clearly speaks to us. To delay is to despise God's authority. If God has spoken and I hesitate to respond to what God has told me to do, then I am questioning God's right to tell me what to do. I am despising His authority. To delay is to question His knowledge. If God has clearly shown me something in His Word that I ought to do, and I delay to do it, then that means I am doubting whether or not God is right about this. Because if I'm certain he is right, there's no reason to hesitate. If I hesitate, then I'm doubting God's knowledge in regard to what he's asked me about. To delay is to insist on my own opinion. To delay is to say what I think is better, what I'm doing is better, the way that I want to do this is better. When God has made his will clear, if we fail to act upon it immediately, our response or our failure to respond is... Rebellion. Now, we don't like to see it that way. A lot of times we like to think, well, I know this is something God wants me to do and I'll get around to it eventually. Abraham didn't respond that way. This is what God wants. I will immediately obey. The second thing I see concerning Abraham's obedience is that it was unquestioning. Unquestioning. Not only was it prompt and that he didn't delay, but neither did he question God. Upon hearing God's command, Abraham did not try to argue with God. He didn't try to reason with God. He didn't question why God wanted to do this. He didn't question why this was necessary. He didn't try to rationalize or offer God an alternative process. There was no questioning why God wanted this done. It was enough for Abraham that God had spoken. Boy, I'm telling you what, it would do us a lot of good as Christians if we would learn to have that attitude. Because a lot of times we look into the Word of God and we come across a truth or a principle in the Word of God and instead of just saying, God said it, I'm going to act on it, we reason and we rationalize. We question, is it applicable to our day? How does this fit in our lifestyle? How will everyone feel about it? And we just we uh, take piece by piece and we, we uh, take the Word of God apart and we try to make it fit our life. Abraham said, God spoke it. I don't need to rationalize. This is what God said. You know, excuse me. As our creator, God has the right to command us. Now, a lot of times we don't seem to get that. A lot of times lost folks uh, will say, I don't want to be saved because then I'm underneath all these rules and regulations and things I have to do. I don't want to have to obey God. Well, here's news for you, lost person. He created you, and whether you accept him or not, he has authority over you. 
as our Creator, He has the right to dictate what we can and cannot do. He has the right to command us to do this or not do that. As our Creator, He has the right to control over us. He has the right to command us. He seeks, as our Creator, He has the right to command us, but as our Father, He seeks what is best for us. Here's how Abraham was able to obey. He said, as my creator, he has the right to command me. And as my father, I know he seeks what is best for me. And as the omniscient, sovereign ruler of the universe, he knows why he is doing each and everything he is doing. Have you ever done something and somebody asks you why you're doing that and you say, I don't know. Ever been there? I, I don't know. I remember one time I was trying to change brakes on my S10. I was just a young fella in the first vehicle, and I was out there trying to change brakes, and I had a ratchet, and then I had a cheater bar. I mean, I was pulling and twisting, doing my best to get that bolt off of there, and my dad walked out, and he watched me for a minute. He said, why are you, why are you doing that? Trying to get the brake off. He said, well, why are you turning it that way? I said, I don't know. Try to get it off. He said, try turning it the other way. <laughs> sometimes we do things and we're not sure why we're doing things the way we're doing it. We're not sure why we're, why we're making the choices we are, you know. Uh, sometimes when you're driving and you, uh, of course, nowadays with telephones and GPSs and all this, you don't get lost near as much. But, you know, back there have been times when you, you couldn't find your way. You don't have a road map. You don't know where you're at. And like, why are you going this way? I don't know. I really don't know. I'm hoping I find a telephone or something. I don't know. God never does anything that he doesn't know why he's doing it. Everything he does, he knows why he's doing it. I am sure that Abraham's mind was filled with questions, but he trusted that as omniscient, sovereign ruler of the universe, a father that cared for him and a creator that had the right to command him, his best option was simply do what God had said. No need to question. God knew what he was doing. The third thing I see concerning Abraham's obedience, not only was it prompt or non-questioning, but I see that his obedience was complete. His obedience was complete. Whenever we hear the commands of the Word of God, often there is the temptation to obey half-heartedly or to obey partially. But Abraham obeyed completely. You know what? Oftentimes we will see things in the Word of God and we will, we'll look at the fruits of the Spirit and we'll be like, well, I got most of those. We'll look at the description of charity. We've looked at it a couple times on Sunday nights uh, recently. We'll look at that and we'll be like, yeah, I, I got some of that. Uh, uh, we'll go through the Word of God and we'll see the different things that God has commanded us to do and we'll be like, yeah, I, I've got, I, I do most of that. And we say it as if we're doing good. We're often tempted to obey partially. It's almost like we feel like we're on a point system, you know? If I do this one, that's 100 points. If I do this one, that's 100 points. It's 100 points. I only need 500 to win, so I'll just really apply myself to these three, and uh, I won't have to worry about the other two. That's sometimes how we act as Christians, you know? I'm just going to obey partially. I'm going to do the ones I like, try to make extra points here, but that's not how it works with God. God wants complete wholehearted, full obedience. And
And that is what Abraham gave God. And because of his obedience to God, Abraham was able to lead those under his influence also in following God. I see three areas where Abraham's obedience served as an example to those under his authority. Three places here where Abraham's obedience serves as an example to those under his authority. First, I see parental instruction. Parental instruction. We see that Abraham was circumcised, and we see that also his son Ishmael was circumcised. Uh, Abraham accepted his role as father and instructed his son Ishmael uh, of the importance uh, of submitting to God in obedience to this command. God said to Abraham, I want you to follow me in this uh, right, but I also want your sons uh, and your servants. Uh, And Abraham followed God, and then Abraham uh, instructed his son concerning the things of God. As a leader of the home, Abraham had received instruction from God, and Abraham passed that instruction on to his family. And you know what? In our day, the father is still the leader of the home. Our modern society is working as hard as they can to do away with the way God set things up. But it is God's line of authority that the father is the head of the home. This in no way whatsoever degrades or belittles ladies. It is just God's order of command. Matter of fact, it puts a great deal of responsibility upon the man in the home because the man in the home will receive instruction from God and it is his responsibility to then pass that instruction on to his family. It is his responsibility to make sure that what God has shown him, that he is teaching that uh, uh, to his children, that he's helping lead his wife, and that together they are following God. It's how God set it up. And here we see that Abraham received the instruction from God, and then as a father, he took and gave the instruction to Ishmael and said, this is what you need to do. So that Ishmael too would live in submission to God. Not only do I see his parental instruction, but second, I see Abraham's leadership uh, in his patriarchal influence. First, he instructed his son, but we also see that Abraham served as a godly employer to those in his household. Not only did he instruct his son to follow God, but he influenced those who he employed to also follow God. The passage lists both those that were born in his home. This would indicate long-term servants, uh, people that had been there long enough that they had a family, they had raised children, the children had grown up. These are long-term servants uh, and those bought with money. This would refer to more hired hands, short-term help. Uh, and all of them submitted to the right of circumcision. God had commanded that all be circumcised and Abraham obeyed God before, beyond performing the right in his own life in that he influenced those in his employ to also follow God and submit to the will of God. You know what? A lot of times it's easier to keep our religion to ourselves. God wants me to do this. That, I'll, do, I'll do that. That's what God wants me to do. I'll do it. But you do what you want. You do, you do your thing. You do your thing. I'll do my thing. It's a lot easier that way. 
But that's not how God wants us to work. God says, I want you to obey me and I want you to, influ- to impact those in your influence that they will also obey me. I want you to be an influence for me. God commands that not, we don't keep our religion to ourselves, but that our religion be shared. Obeying God individually, when you have the ability to influence those around you. Now, how they respond to your influence is not your responsibility. But you do have a responsibility to influence them. Obeying God individually and not trying to influence those around you is only partial obedience. God commands not only that we obey, but that we influence those around us to also follow God. The third thing that we see in Abraham's obedience is seen in his personal inclusion. His personal inclusion. Abraham could have used the excuse of his age. I'm I'm nearly 100 years old. I understand that God wants us to do this, but Ishmael, we're going to start with your generation and and move forward. Us old guys, we're not going to participate in this. This is something, you know, that God wants us to do, but... You know, I, I could encounter health problems. Uh, I, this, could, this could affect, uh, you know, a lot of different things, and I just don't think that I can do this. Ishmael, we're going to start with you. Abraham could have made some excuses, and we make a lot of excuses about why we don't have to obey God. He could have made some excuses, but Abraham had learned to obey God. He had learned to listen and obey. He had learned that God had his best interest in mind, And instead of doubting, questioning, avoiding, delaying, Abraham obeyed God. Now as we look at the text, we see that Abraham was listed first, then Ishmael, then the servants. This leads me to believe that Abraham led by example. And let me just pause here and say that leading by example is the only effective, long-term type of leadership. I can lead by authority, but once you're out from under my authority, you'll do what you want to do. I can lead by guilt, guilting you into doing what I feel you ought to do, but once you're out from under my authority, out from underneath my leadership, uh, you will free yourself of that guilt and that shame that's put upon you. The only true way to lead is to lead by example. And people see it in you and they adapt it for themselves. When you lead by example and people adapt for themselves what they observe in you, it becomes their personal preference, their their lifestyle habit, and you can't break it out of them. You must lead by example. Also, you lose your credibility if you don't lead by example. I can tell you all the time all the things in the Word of God that you ought to do. And the Word of God is true, it's valid, it's accurate, nothing wrong with the textbook. But if I'm not doing what I'm telling you to do, you will not only discredit me, but you will discredit the textbook. I must be doing what I'm saying. I've got to live what I preach. Many times people have tried the approach of do as I say, not as I do. And it just doesn't work. Never has worked, never will work. 
Abraham led by instruction. He led by influence. Uh, he led by including himself in submitting to the will of God for himself uh, and his family. I'll just throw this in here. If you see a weakness in your home, mainly speaking to men here, ladies, you can apply this as well, though. If you see a weakness in your home, before you address the other family members about the weakness, do a real thorough look at yourself and see if they learn it from you. And if they did, fix it in yourself before you bring it up to them. So many people are not even aware of their own shortcomings. And they will try to fix their own shortcomings in everybody else and never address them in themselves. Abraham led by example. The last thing I want to look at this evening is an illustration that we see here in this passage concerning the rite of circumcision that can be applied to understanding the symbolic nature of church ordinances that we practice today, such as the Lord's Supper, baptism, and things like that. When we consider circumcision, we see first that it was a limited ordinance. And that would be uh, there on your worksheet, a limited ordinance. It was a limited ordinance in two ways. So this thing of circumcision was limited first uh, in that it was limited regarding time. The rite of circumcision was temporary. Uh, it was only required of the Jewish people leading up to the Messiah. So this was a limited ordinance regarding time. But second, and this is the one that we'll look at a little more in depth, it was limited regarding its task. It was limited in what it could accomplish. Now, we know from the New Testament that circumcision was a temporary rite required of the Jewish people for the purpose of setting them apart as a nation. Uh, as we mentioned a little bit ago, for the Jews, uh, this rite was a generational reminder of the promise that God gave to Abraham. This was a distinguishing mark from all the other nations. This was an indicator of their dedication to God. But this rite was temporary. This rite had absolutely nothing to do with salvation. As a matter of fact, as we mentioned last week, whether or not circumcision was a requirement for salvation was a hotly debated subject in the early New Testament church. Matter of fact, we read in the book of Acts about how heated this discussion became and that people came from Antioch, they came to Jerusalem, the elders met together to debate this subject, whether or not uh, circumcision was required for salvation. Matter of fact, the book of Galatians, Paul wrote the book of Galatians. Paul wrote the book of Galatians. One of the main reasons he wrote the book of Galatians was to prove that circumcision was not needed or works was not needed for salvation. That's why he wrote the book. And so this was something that was hotly debated. But there were many Jews who wanted to link circumcision to salvation. In our day, Many put this same type of importance on baptism or taking the Lord's Supper or many other things. They may consider that this is salvation. Baptism is one that a lot of people uh, consider that this is uh, either required for salvation or this is how they receive salvation uh, is through baptism, which just a little side note, pay attention to your... Uh, 
to your Christian music. I love Christian music, all kinds of Christian music. You know I do. But you listen to them lyrics, and boy, I'm telling you what, Christian songwriters are bad about washing your sins away when you get baptized. I just got news for you. Your sins don't get washed away when you get baptized. That's not when it happens. I'm, I'm cleansed by the blood. The water and the river don't do nothing for me as far as my eternal destiny. But many people want to put this importance on baptism, uh, saying that it's required or how you receive salvation when in truth it has nothing to do with salvation. But instead, it's an act of obedience to God because of our belief in Him. Our belief is where we get our salvation. And then after we believe in Him, we obey Him in baptism. The same thing with circumcision. Abraham believed God long before he was circumcised. But he was followed God in obedience in this right because he believed God. Here in this passage of Scripture, and I hope I can word this to where you can see it, we see an illustration of the inability of a rite or an ordinance to produce conversion by looking at the example of Abraham and Ishmael. Now, Abraham was a believer long before he was circumcised. And he continued to be a believer long after he was circumcised. Abraham's circumcision had no effect whatsoever on the fact that he was a believer. It was an act of obedience, had nothing to do with his conversion. On the other hand, Ishmael was a rebel. From day one, Ishmael caused problems and he still calls them problems today. Ishmael was a rebel. We find out that when Isaac was born, uh, he caused problems in the home. He made fun of Isaac. Ishmael was a rebellious boy, but he obeyed his father and submitted to the rite of circumcision, but he did it out of obligation, not because of a personal belief in God. And after circumcision, Ishmael continued to be a rebel. The application that I'm making here is that in Abraham's case, he was circumcised because he believed God. It had nothing to do with his belief. He believed before, he believed after. Ishmael was circumcised out of obligation and it made no change in who he was. He was a rebel before, he was a rebel after. The right did not convert. The right was an act of obedience. So whenever we consider uh, things such as baptism, the Lord's Supper, church membership, charitable giving, or any other physical thing that we can do, there is no right or ordinance that can convert the heart. It can't change the heart. Only belief in God can change the heart of man. Only belief in God can change the heart of man. And we see a comparison here between this Old Testament right that people argued is this required for salvation and we can compare it to our modern day ordinance of baptism and we can see this act of obedience does not change who you are. It doesn't do anything for you. It's simply an act of obeying God because you believe God. Many people, however, have been erroneously taught that baptism will bring salvation and they get baptized or they baptize their infants thinking that they have 
converted that person when in truth all they did was get them wet. Nothing happened to their soul. And so we see here, we see that this, this right could not change the heart. Only belief in God can change the heart. As we look at this account of Abraham, we look at all that took place in chapter 17. We see a man who had learned to wait. We see a man that had learned to obey. And my question is, what about us? Are we willing to wait when God wants us to wait? Are we willing to obey when God speaks and is ready to move? Sometimes, really most all the time, God works on a different schedule than you and I. He sees a bigger picture than we do. And a lot of times, all he requires of us is that we be willing to wait and obey in his time, in his way, the way that he would have us to when he is ready. Abraham learned this lesson. Abraham waited on God and God came through and spoke to Abraham. Hopefully y'all enjoyed chapter number 17.